The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now, 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 it's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with entrepreneur, author, pilot, photographer, and fellow talk show host, Ron Irwin, a man who I've traveled around the world with and the individual who introduced me to the world of public relations. I'll speak with Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech, trading as ONCY on the NASDAQ and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a reovirus called Reolysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. And I'll speak with our friend David Morgan about war, religion, robotics, and the marginalization of the American workforce. Oh boy, let's begin the program. Join me now for a conversation with an old buddy of mine who taught me almost everything I don't know and a lot of things I do know. His name is Ron Irwin. Ron Irwin is a writer for Examiner.com. He's based in Burbank, California, about 10 miles away over the hill. Ron, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be back with you, Al. Now, Ron, we know each other going back about, oh, I don't know, 17 years or so when I was a little bit younger and in need of a job and you gave me one. I'm sorry. But it turned out okay in the end. It turned out okay in the end, in the very end. We're not at the end yet, though. We're at the beginning of the show. Anyway, Ron, it's really good to talk with you, and I just wanted to give our audience a little bit of a history, a personal history of how you and I met and how our paths have come together and gone away and come back like a figure eight or a DNA um, genome of some sort. Very simple. One day, I'm minding my business in my little office here in Burbank, and some Guy walks in and says, hi, I'm Ellis Martin. And I'm like, okay. And we started talking, and one thing led to another, and the next thing you know, we were doing things together. We were working on doing promotional stuff and public relations things, and had a public company that we were working with, had an actual studio right in the office. We had a lot of fun. And I knew nothing about the world of public relations at the time. I was an out-of-work actor and radio person, and you really taught me quite a bit. I learned how to promote anything that really needed, the the word was exposure, not necessarily promotion. There was a, a lot of lingo involved. I learned it. You gave me a job right away. We started making money together and playing golf and traveling the world, and it was a, a bunch of fun back in the late 90s. Yeah, that's true. We did do a little bit of traveling. We did play a little bit of golf. It was a lot of fun. I won't talk about Tahiti, but there are a lot of things that we did that were absolute blast. <laughs> it was great. I'll always not have Bora Bora. <laughs> uh, we'll just leave yeah, that out. We'll... The world will have to take it to the grave. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Ron, because it was really pathetic, and and uh, I'm still embarrassed about it. Now, you've written a couple of books lately. The one I have on my screen is Hollywood on Stage, a critical review by Ron Irwin. Now, after yeah. we parted ways professionally, you went off and began doing entertainment reviews for The Examiner. Tell us about well, that. 
Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a funny thing because my daughter, who, by the way, Carrie, just got into USC. Yay, Congratulations. fight on. Some years ago now, she did the thing that so many daughters do to their parents. She looked at me with her big, beautiful, smiling eyes and said, Daddy, I'm going to be an actress. And I'm like, in Burbank? Why? <laughs> so, anyhow, being as it may, uh, the girl was very driven, very committed and good. And so I thought, well... I can do PR and things like that, but how else can I help my daughter? And I said, well, you know that in the world of entertainment, it's not so much what you know, but who you know. And what better way to get to know a bunch of people than to start writing critical reviews, right? True. And so I did. And one thing led to another, and now she's pretty much put the acting on hold till she gets the academics out of the way. But I'm still writing the reviews, and I've met a lot of people in the industry. You know, interestingly enough, Al, when I was doing talk radio about 4,000 years ago, right after Marconi came along, the first interview I did of a celebrity was a, a little kid that had just come back from doing a movie in Australia. His name was Mel Gibson. It was just fun. I was never the kind of guy that went, oh my God, it's, it's Mel Gibson. It was like, yeah, guy had a story. It was interesting. From there, it, it became simple to talk to interesting people. It's, it's easy. Even before you started doing, let's say, financial radio or PR, you were doing these interviews. In fact, I saw Charlton Heston walk out of your studio one day, and I'm, I'm wondering, how did that happen? <laughs> Yeah, that happened because of a good old friend by the name of Dick Spangler. Charlton Heston and Dick Spangler worked together on a movie, and they maintained friendship, and why not? This stuff happens, and we, look where we live. It doesn't happen so much in Albuquerque, but we're in Southern California, and things like this happen. And it's fun. It, if, if you take the right attitude, it's fun. So anyhow, this book, Hollywood on Stage, a critical review, the main focus of it is to introduce people who care to the legitimate theater that is so abundant in L.A. You think of theater, you think of Broadway, right? which is true. If somebody says, Hollywood, your first thing is going to be film and TV, which is true. But there's probably somewhere north of 300 stages in the greater Southern California area that are active at any given time. Many of them are little 99-seaters or little black box stages. Of course, you have the Pantages and the Amundsen, but there's lots of them, and a lot of them actually have really good acting and really good stories and really good presentations. It's amazing. So what did you do to prepare to write this book? Spent six years writing it. It's an accumulation of a lot of my reviews with dialogue between it, talking about how things happen and people I met and so forth. It really does acquaint those who don't know. It acquaints people with the legitimate theater of Southern California in a way that I don't think has ever been done before. It's not a book for actors, is it? Who's the target here? Pretty much anybody that has any interest whatsoever in the stage. There's even a couple of silly film reviews. I'll give you an example because it's only natural that I do occasional movie reviews too. Why not? And last year, if you remember around Christmas, there was that big Sony hack hoax thing that went on. Yep. Notice I added the word hoax. My honest opinion of that about the interview, in my humble opinion, one of the worst movies ever made. And if you understand anything about history, and I spent a lot of time in Asia, so I'm pretty good with Asian history. The Koreans and the Japanese, for a multitude of good reasons, don't much like each other. And sure. I'm thinking that when the CEO of Sony Pictures realized that he had a dog with fleas on his plate and that they had put tens of millions of dollars into this film that had pretty close to zero chance of making any money, he said, I have an idea. Let's fake a Korean hack on Sony, and that will get more press and more media and more attention to this 
terrible movie than anything else we could possibly do. And it did. But why would they want to expose their executives at the same time? I'm not sure they did. I think they made it look like it, but really? How many heads rolled? Zero. That we know of. Okay. Point taken. Okay. And interestingly enough, it started to evolve towards the end of the conversation to a suspicion of a former employee being involved. And then when that came up, everything just disappeared. The whole story went off the plate, except Ron Irwin's story, which was, "Uh uh-uh, this is a scam. And whoever did the PR on it deserves a million-dollar bonus because it was brilliant. Did you release that review or that story right away when the movie came out on, I would say, not in theaters, but downloadable for 20 bucks a shot? I think it came out at about the same time, and I think the majority of the world doesn't care. But I had fun (laughs) writing it. (laughs) So, you know, we move on. But it was that. And then, of course, early in the new year, there was The Imitation Game, which is one of the best movies ever made. I don't know if you had the opportunity to see it, but it was an excellent film. Now, Ron, I did not have an opportunity to see it yet, although I received it because I'm a member of the Screen Actors Guild. And as an actor with a theater background, I never knew... LA as a theater town, much as like you mentioned. And I've done some theater here, but not a lot. One of the reasons that I haven't is, well, sometimes I don't feel like driving across town, to be honest with you. (laughs) Traffic is a little bit of a pain here. And the other reason is there's a lot of community theater, which I don't think serves somewhat seasoned actors. What's your experience between community theater and let's say equity theaters as a reviewer? Everything that I see is usually equity waiver, 99 seat black box stuff, although I Obviously, I've been to the Pantages and the Amundsen, and they're full boron. I don't know exactly what you're saying by community theater, if you mean something like associated with a junior college or that kind of thing. I guess you've answered my question. These are nice people that have a career, and they they want to occasionally dip their feet onto the boards and and do an acting gig. Just There's a lot of that. I've discovered that the the people that are severe actors can't help themselves. If they became neurosurgeons, they'd still have to go do a play because it's a passion. Nothing wrong with that. It seems to me that doing theater is a lot more rewarding in the moment than let's say shooting a film because you've got an ensemble you're starting at point a you're finishing right at the end of it you're not stopping to reshoot or anything like that so it's pretty much live theater is live theater that's what i was thinking yeah yeah damn so what do they do like so we were discussing uh, actors yeah and the part-time ones that proliferate the little theaters and the truth of the matter is yeah that's right and very rarely do people go from a black box stage to a lead role in a Hollywood feature. But they but, get their feet wet on that but black they, And they don't stage. care. They do what they love. And you never know that you're not going to be seen in one of these theaters in L.A. by people in the business that might be scouting or looking for someone to bring to their project. It's possible, but it's somewhat, frankly, a bit of a long shot. And, you know, honestly, what it takes is, first of all, talent. And not everybody that has a passion for acting necessarily has the depth of talent. Then the next thing it takes is a total focus. I mean, I'm going to do this and I'm going to go about it every way. Yeah, sure. You should get a good agent. Probably should not worry much about a manager until you have something to manage. And You should be working your butt off. You should not only be using your agent, you should be networking in every possible way. You should be maybe going on some of these online things like LA Casting and Actors Access. Odds of getting something really good off of that is frankly pretty rare, but it's yet another tool. It's hard work. It's probably easier being a neurosurgeon. Not so easy to get the gig, but once you're there, it's hard work, but it's a passion. If you love it, you got to do it. Let's talk about your daughter, Carrie Irwin, who I first met when she was two years old running around the office and 
let's track her career because you were responsible for fostering an interest with Carrie in regard to film and television and theater. And now, as you mentioned earlier in this interview, she is going to be attending the USC Film School. I'm assuming it's the film school. No, no, she's not doing film school. No? Uh Uh-uh. She's going to communication school because she realizes that gives her more... Let's talk about Carrie for a few minutes. I'm sure you don't mind. Let's track her interest in the business and what she's done. Well, she's a typical kid. I mean, when she was eight or nine years old, she'd done some stuff in school, and she'd gone to a thing called show camp, which was a form of daycare in the summer, but they actually did stuff on stage and put on performances, and she fell in love with it. I mean... Duh, like a lot of kids do. Then she decided to get serious. And the very first audition I took it for, she sucked because we had no idea what we were doing and we showed up completely unprepared and it was obvious. <laughs> but by the second time, that problem got fixed and she got the lead role in a wonderful story, The Importance of Being Earnest. She was Lady Bracknell at age 12. And she had some tremendous monologues in there and pulled them up. It was an astounding thing to watch. And from that, she ended up at some other smaller theaters. She actually got some critical acclaim from people other than her dad when she did Jekyll and Hyde at Doma a few years ago. So she's been fine. She's been nothing major in film. She's done some student films and independent films and things like that. Then about a year and a half ago, she said, I'm putting this aside for right now. I got to get my academic credentials and her game plan i mean this is her this did not come from her dad this came from her and her observations and the things she saw around her and she goes i want to get my academic done i want to go to usc because everybody that's anybody in the entertainment world has some connection with usc and that's true and now she's also now that she's looking at going to usc in the fall she's going to start as second semester sophomore because she did a lot of her stuff at a community college first so she'll be a second semester sophomore in the fall and she's looking at Columbia Law. Really? Yeah, because she figures that if she's general counsel for, say, Universal Pictures, she can probably get any damn role she wants. And that's not a bad way to look at it. Do you really think it works that way? Well... I think if you're general counsel, you may not have time. But regardless, she'll still be in the entertainment world, and she'll be doing things she loves, and she'll be actually able to support herself, which is hard to do at 11 bucks an hour in a black box theater. You know, I was just having a conversation with a, a lawyer last night at a local watering hole, and what's been the case with some attorneys, and I would have to say you, and perhaps your daughter, you started off as a litigator in Chicago, but yep. you found your JD useful, whether you practiced or not, and pretty much uh, everything that you've done. And oh, yeah. This may be the same case for your daughter. You don't have to practice as a lawyer, but having that knowledge is very worthwhile. Well, yeah, and the only advice I'm giving her is, yes, go ahead, get your law degree, and never, ever go into a courtroom. That's brutal. That is absolutely brutal. It's like if you become a litigator, the state bar is the last bar you'll ever pass. That's fascinating. Well, that takes a lot of the stress out of it for people that are thinking about getting into law and are not comfortable spending time in the courtroom or litigating or even being in front of people like that. Just to have the knowledge itself helps you think and prepare, understand contracts, understand negotiation, things of that nature. Yeah, it makes it a little bit harder to, uh, in fact, it's sort of funny. I was just talking about Jekyll and Hyde and all the actors signed contracts because they were paid. And it was sort of funny because they had both union and non-union and my daughter is SAG-AFTRA. And her contract just 
didn't want to pay her because she was non-union. And of course, because of my law background, I actually read contracts. And I said, <clears throat> excuse me, there seems to be a small, oh, oh, we're sorry. That's a small thing, but that's the kind of attention to detail that if people had at a greater level, you'd do better. Plus the connection she's going to make at USC will be amazing throughout her entire life and their alumni situation. Their alumni organization is very, very strong. Oh, huge. Oh, absolutely huge. Yes, it's like one gigantic extended family. And having, you know, Steve Spielberg as one of your BFFs, not a bad thing. So she considered NYU for a while, but was basically location <laughs> or USC just a better networking opportunity for someone who wants to get into film and film production? That's a brilliant question. The answer is hilarious. A couple of years ago, we were at the Sierra Madre Playhouse. She was doing a show out there. And there were two beautiful young ladies, recent NYU grads. And I noticed her one day and I said, you see those two girls, Carrie? She goes, yeah. I said, they're NYU grads, and they're making the same $11 a show that you are. But the difference is they have about $200,000 worth of student loan debt. Do you like NYU? And then she kind of thought about that. And then a year and a half ago, I took her to Broadway. I took her to New York because that's her dream. And I actually got her on a Broadway stage, don't ask. And the day we got there, we went for a walk. Now, she's a, a valley girl. She was born here. We went for a walk through Manhattan when it was 16 degrees. And she couldn't stand it. She had to dive in a doorway. And I said, hey, you got to go to school in this. Plus, you get a lot of student loan debt, and then you get to make $11 a show. What do you think? She says, you know, USC looks pretty good, Dad. <laughs> so weather is definitely a factor for a Southern California gal, I guess. Well, and greater opportunity for scholarships and work and other things. It's just fascinating to see the life and times of Carrie Irwin up till this point. I doubt she's older than 17 years old, and she's already a uh, second semester sophomore at USC before even entering their doorway as a student. That's fantastic. Yes, it is. It's, it's a beautiful thing, and I hope it never changes. Did you always want to be involved when you were a young man in Chicago? Did you always want to be involved in some capacity in Hollywood, either as a reviewer, an actor? What brought you out to California? What brought a lot of guys out to California? I got divorced and wanted to get as far away from it as I could. <laughs> Actually, my first many years here, I used to drive up and down Olive and Barham and thought those big buildings over there were storage. I didn't know it was Warner Brothers. Didn't care. One experience when I was 11 years old, I did a magic show. One stupid trick in a tiny, tiny theater. And it was okay. I got a little applause. I walked off the stage and said, I'm never going on a stage again. And I've been true to my word. But yet you got behind a microphone. Simple. You only have to look at an engineer. I didn't care. I'm looking through glass at some guy twirling knobs. is not a problem. But when I'm staring at other living souls right near me, staring back at me, that freaked me out. But when you're a thespian, you love it. That's a charge. I get it. It's just not my charge. I don't mind doing talk radio. It's fun. Oh, you were very good at it. One of the things that I noticed about your procedure, if, if, I, can use procedure? That, if yeah. I can use that word, is that you could pretty much get two or three lines about, let's say, a company that needed some exposure or promotion, and you could tell the story. There was no preparation involved, whereas I, to this day, I've got to put my head into the website, I've got to learn about the company, I've got to script my questions, and I have to edit after the fact. There's really okay. no improv involved in what I do, but with you, it sounds as if you've been over to dinner with some of the CEOs of these companies, yeah. and it was a very natural way of bringing in an audience. Well, thank you. I'm obviously an accomplished BSer, but where that... Oh, you know what? Actually, I do know where that came from. Ever represent somebody in a courthouse in front of a jury who is guiltier than hell, and yet you got to say something really stupid, like if it don't fit, you got to acquit and get away with it? So that technique of yours came from law? Yeah. 
Fascinating. Is that something you, you were got, taught? You got 12 people sitting in a jury box looking at this guy that stabbed his buddy 11 times, and you got to go, hey, come on, no one's perfect. Uh, <laughs> you know, there could have been a mistake here. We're not 100% certain. Certainly none of us were there. We didn't witness it ourselves, and the evidence is not 100% conclusive. And by gummy, I think we got a lot of reasonable doubt. <clears throat> okay, thank you. And literally, you didn't need to know much about a company. And I've seen you do it. Certainly, yeah, it was huh. over 15 years ago. But I would hand you a couple of notes on a, a new client. You'd go as if they were your new best friend or old best friend. Just well, an amazing feat. And that's what you do in the courtroom? There's a little bit more preparation. But you know, at the end of the day, I never represented a client ever that was guilty, and I never represented a client ever that got convicted. How could you tell if somebody was guilty or not? Was that part of your training as well? No, they don't train you for that. Well, sometimes they actually told me, but usually I said, there's certain things I don't want to know. But there is an attorney-client privilege anyhow. So usually if the cops walk in and the guy is standing there with the bleeding dagger and there's a sliced up body on the floor, that's fairly strong evidence. (laughs) (laughs) But we can spin it. (laughs) By the way, for those people who are going, yeah, I knew the court system's corrupt. Come up with a better plan. It's not perfect. Absolutely not perfect, but come up with a better plan. And every time I criticize the legal system, which is easy enough to do, and I ask myself the same question, I'm still waiting to come up with the better plan. You could do it the ISIS way. We don't like you, so bend over while we cut your head off. How's that? When I met you, you were probably twice my waist size, and now you are my waist size. You died, came back, and your life changed. Let's talk about the book that you put out just about a year ago, I think, year and a half ago. Yeah, about that. Live, die, live again, because I have no real imagination, so I came up with that because that's what it was. On December 18, 2012, I stood up from my desk, turned around, Thought I had something caught in my throat. It took me about a half a second to realize that that wasn't it. And I was starting to fade to black. And before I went totally black, I did have the strength to dial 911 send into the phone. And that was my last conscious memory for several days. I had congestive heart failure. The Burbank EMTs, God bless them, they're the best. They found me. When you have CHF, your lungs will fill with fluid. And when your lungs fill with fluid, of course, you're not breathing. And when you're not breathing and then the heart quits, you're dead. The brain's still working, but it's fading. They got it all relit and got me over, put me in ICU. And after 26 days, I left. I was a wreck, but I was told I had four wonderful things I had to concern myself with. Heart failure, diabetes, and obesity and then a month after getting out of the hospital they said oh by the way we've run some more tests and you also have cancer i said you know you are piling on i made a decision that i wanted to beat all that i started exercising regularly i started eating a lot less meat and a lot less of everything between the exercise and the diet i shed 140 pounds and i'm in much better shape so you're about six feet tall and you weigh what 165 yeah well you know i found that life was better than death i was fully expecting to run into the guy with the red suit and the horns and stuff not him no harps nothing it was just fade to black. But Ellis, as interesting as this book is, because it's kind of my life story, it really displays all of the insanity that brought me to where I was, including my early life, leaving home at age 11, joining the Marines, volunteering to go to Vietnam because I obviously had no intellectual capacity. Just a bunch of stuff, being a lawyer, being a pilot, doing these things. But at the end of the day, what ultimately mattered, and this is what, if you read that book, you get to the end, the last paragraph or two, really is the whole story. You know what it's about? Love. The love I felt from my family in that hospital was unbelievable. I could not remember 
anything like it ever before. My wife, my daughters, my sons, my grandchildren were coming in there. I felt it. Third or fourth day in ICU, even though I was in a coma, some doctor came in and had the audacity to say to my family, if he survives, he'll have to go to a home. That pulled the trigger, and I said, screw you, this isn't happening. So... They got me up into a wheelchair, and after a day of that, I said, I don't want to be in a wheelchair. So I pushed it. I stood behind it and pushed it. Then they gave me a walker, and I said, hell no, I don't want to look like every other old guy in Burbank. I gave up the walker. Then I started bouncing off walls for a while, and finally I said, okay, I'm good enough. I'm out of here. Goodbye. So love really is the message. Yeah, after all the BS, a whole life of BS, I finally felt a level and a type of love I had never really understood before. What are you doing differently since before you died? Other than just having a much better inner peace, really appreciating very deeply my wife and daughters and grandchildren, that's a pretty big change. I mean, they were always important to me, but they were always there. Now they're, thank you, God, they're there. Do we need to go through what you went through to have that realization? I don't think so. But you see, you got to understand, when you come from a tortured life, you got to have something to change it. My mom and dad were uniquely mismatched, and it was abundantly clear to me as a child. And it was painful, but what do you do about it? When you're three, four, five, six years old, what do you do? Nothing. You're just there. You're a victim, in effect. And this isn't to put down my parents. They were themselves. Who knows what their history was? They did the best they could do in their lives. I've been far from a perfect human being and still am, but I felt a very powerful message of familial love. And that brought a sense of peace to me that I have never known before. So you ought to buy the book and read it. How can we find the book? And how can we find uh, the latest book that you've written, Hollywood on Stage, a critical review by Ron Irwin? The easiest way to do either is you can go to Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or, even better, just go to lulu.com and type in my name, Ron Irwin, and you'll see everything I've written, and you'll have a choice in most cases between hard copy book or paperback book or digital download. So the latest one hasn't been digitized yet, but the others are. So three or four bucks, you can have the book, and that's it. And how can we read your reviews? Examiner.com. Just go to examiner.com and type in Ron Irwin, and then you can subscribe, and the subscription's absolutely free. Just go to examiner.com and type in, in their search bar, Ron Irwin. It'll say Burbank or L.A. Entertainment Industry Examiner. I've been speaking with my friend and mentor, Ron Irwin. If you go to lulu.com, that's L-U-L-U.com, you can find yeah. both of the books that we've been discussing today. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you, sir. Good talking with you. I've been speaking with entrepreneur, author, pilot, photographer, and fellow talk show host, Ron Irwin. His website is ronsworld.co. That's ronsworld.co. He penned the book, Live, Die, Live Again, the true story of his return from death after a massive heart attack and the positive change it brought to his life. And he recently authored Hollywood on Stage, a critical review by Ron Irwin. Ron writes a column for The Examiner. Find it on examiner.com. Find his books on lulu.com. This segment can be heard again as well as the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Download it now. I'm Ellis Martin. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson. 
president and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated. Trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks very much. Now, if you wouldn't mind, give us a brief summary of the business of Oncolytics Biotech. Well, Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company solely focused on developing therapies for cancer. The technology that we're using is to use a live agent, in this case a virus, to treat a variety of different cancers. It's sort of a leading edge new wave in, in oncology today to use viruses and there's probably five or six different companies now looking at different viruses for the treatment of cancer. Now, there are so many different cancers, and we've certainly covered some of them in previous broadcasts, but I'd like to dedicate this particular broadcast based on a recent news release that the company has on pediatric cancer. How many children across North America and maybe across the world are afflicted with cancer each year that you're aware of? Well, there's probably between ten and 12,000 children in the United States every year under the age of 15 that come down with cancers. So if you extrapolate that to worldwide... That probably means around 50,000 children every year. So it's significant from perspective of the children involved, but children really don't get cancer that often. But the unfortunate part of childhood cancers is that they tend to be quite serious. So you don't tend to have that kind of benign, in-between kind of cancers that adults get. When children get cancer, it becomes a very serious issue. And we've actually made a lot of progress on survival rates. 40 years ago, the five-year survival rate was just a little over a half. So if you had a child, they had a very poor prognosis. That's over 80% now, five-year survival. But that still means, an example with the United States, that you probably have close to 1,500 children every year in the United States dying of cancer. That's not an acceptable number, obviously. Now, as far as early detection, detection if these children are so young, how do you detect specific kinds of cancer? Does it depend on the cancer? It depends very much on the cancer. I mean, we have concentrations of cancers. There's quite a few leukemias, so you know, non-solid tumors type cancers that are bloodborne, and they're more difficult to detect early. You typically get them later, but that's one of the areas we've had the best success in. There's been great advances in treating childhood leukemias, which is marvelous. It was a death sentence before, and now it's not. Some of the other cancers are a little more difficult to detect. Sarcomas, which are uh, soft tissue or bony tumors are more common in children and they tend to be not detected early enough to have very simple therapies. And of course, the one that is most germane to oncolytics is brain cancers and they tend to be detected actually fairly late. The external symptoms that you get with brain cancers usually only manifest themselves when the cancer is fairly advanced. That was going to be my question to you. When you're talking about a brain tumor or brain cancer, there's, I would imagine, very little early detection involved. And by the time you've diagnosed it, you've got to treat it, and perhaps it's stage two or stage three cancer. This is a very, very dicey area. So you're beginning, according to your latest news release, you're beginning at least a phase one study in pediatric patients with brain tumor. Can you lay that out for us and give us some kind of possible hope as to how this disease may be treated in the future using oncolytics technology? Well, children are an extra complication in cancer therapy because the agents that have been historically used attack rapidly growing cells in the body. Radiation, chemotherapy, they tend to be toxic to cells that just grow rapidly. And that's really all cancer is, a cluster of out-of-control cells growing. 
growing. But when you think about a child, a child is all rapidly growing cells when they're young. I mean, the nervous system in a child it grows so quickly, it's hard to keep track of, I mean, as an example. So when you have tumors in the central nervous system, what do you do about that? I mean, are you going to radiate that? I not very commonly know. Are you going to treat the child with chemotherapy? Well, no, because I mean, the toxicity associated with that is very difficult. It's very heartbreaking, honestly, when you get a child coming in with a brain tumor and because of the tools that we normally use in adults just aren't really that applicable to the children. That's further complicated by the fact that a lot of the brain cancers in children are deep down in the brain in the lower part and that's the part of the brain that controls breathing and it controls all the autonomic functions and surgery really isn't an option either. So you have these five to ten year old children coming in with cancers. All the available tools just aren't there for you. And so the approach that we're taking with this particular cancer is to take two very safe therapies that don't rely on those mechanisms of action and that being in this case GMCSF which is a white blood cell extender. It's commonly used in patients after they've had radiation or chemotherapy to restore their white blood cell populations in their body and combining that with realicin which we've done a preliminary pediatric cancer study and it's been shown to be very safe in, in patients. I mean they get a mild fever and they feel tired for a day or two is, is really the only side effects. And combining those two together to treat patients and the hope is that we'll be able to have a treatment that is very benign and also can have the effects that we want which is to treat their cancer and just bypass all the kind of heartbreaking decisions to treat or not to treat with the current standards of care. You used a term called realizing, which is a proprietary term with regard to oncolytics. And again, let's talk about what a real virus is and what realizing is so that our listeners new to the program can understand what's unique about oncolytics biotech and the technology. Well, the virus that we're using, its technical name is Reovirus. And there's three strains of it, and we're using the third strain. So we're using Reovirus type 3. And it's a very commonly found in the environment type of virus. Most people by age 5 have some evidence of being exposed to the virus. Almost all adults have been exposed to the virus. It's part of a growing number of viruses that, yes, they're viruses, but they actually don't cause diseases. And certainly people in the field think that probably most viruses don't cause, you know, the ones that we study, of course, are the ones that cause disease, and that's rightfully so. So you've got this relatively safe or safe virus that's present in the environment, and it just happens to actually only grow in cells that have genetic defects that are linked to cancer cell populations. And so you just have this very elegant solution handed to us by nature for a potential problem, which being in this case being cancer. Of course, taking it from being present in the environment and taking it all the way through all the safety and efficacy and all the development, how do you make it kind of issues is being what Oncolytics has been doing since its inception. But it's a very interesting area in that all the viruses that are being tested in oncology, and there's quite a few of them now, all have many of the same elements. They're quite safe. They're quite targeted. They use different mechanisms of action than traditional older therapies. And in this case, with regard to children, it's a technology that would be employed after other curative therapies have been employed and deemed ineffective? Not necessarily. We've focused all our development work at various levels in the treatment lifetime on a patient. And so we've treated what we call first-line patients before with, you know, it's the first time they've been diagnosed. And we think there's a home of for this particular product in that patient population. And we've also treated you know, second, third, fourth, and fifth lines, so depending on how many cycles or types of treatments that people have failed on. And so it, it fits in well with existing therapies. Realicin adds activity to existing therapies. It's what we call synergistic with radiation, which means that it's not a one plus one equal two kind of effect. It's a more one plus one equal much greater than two effect. It's synergistic with most existing chemotherapies. And we're working on looking at some of the new agents, you know, the new biologics that are coming out and it appears to work well 
with those as well. So we think it has a home, if you want to think of it that, with pretty much any line of therapy and with pretty much any type of existing therapy. When the clinical trials start involving pediatric brain cancer, brain tumors to be specific, how are you going to inform the population of the public that's afflicted that you're available to do these trials? The best place for any patient to find out about any clinical trial that's running in the United States is to go to uh, clintrials.gov, so www.clintrials.gov, where there's a complete listing of most, or in some cases all, depending on the time of the year, clinical trials that are undergoing in the United States. And all I have to do is type in the keyword real license, and it would give an entire list of clinical studies that are currently enrolling in the United States. And this particular study is up on clintrials. It's got the contact information. People can just contact the site directly to see if they can get onto a clinical study. I imagine when you're dealing with potentially terminal patients and adults, the criterion for clinical trial is not as stringent as it is with children. There's a lot more hoops you've got to jump through with regard to your company and these trials to involve children in this procedure, correct? Yeah, children are treated with extra special care in clinical trials in, in cancer for the reasons that we've already talked about. There's another reason layered on top of that is that, I mean, children aren't legally able to give informed consent themselves. I mean, it's hard to sit down with a five-year-old and say, you know, I'd like to stick you on this experimental therapy and try to explain it to them and have them make a, a reasoned decision upon that. So you're actually relying on the parents. And so there's a great deal of sensitivity in the system that you're, the people you're talking to are the ones that are most upset by the situation, which is the parents. And the children are actually typically far more stoic and far more accepting of the situation than the parents are. And so there's a lot of sensitivity in the system, both for the safety of the children and for the enrollment process. Adults are capable of, of managing their own affairs. And honestly, they're a lot more durable to all the treatments that people propose to stick them on on these clinical studies. It is a, just an easier process for those two reasons. Brad, what can we look for? to during the next 6 to 12 months with regard to rolling out additional trials or technology? What can we say to potential shareholders? Well, we're really entering a really, I think, exciting stage of development with this particular product. And there's really two paths that we're looking at. One, I would expect in the very near future, people will be hearing about what our final first choices for registration studies. So the, the last step to get the product approved kind of studies will be that we're hoping to do that in this quarter or early next quarter. And then those are very important milestones for people people to be aware of. In behind that, you're going to be seeing us announcing a number of new study initiatives like the one we did this week, which is looking particularly at the immune system, sort of two prongs of attack on that. One is looking at boosting the immune system, which is this GMCSF, a real in combination. And we're planning on doing that in an adult population as well as the announced pediatric indication. And on the other side, looking at our initial studies, looking at checkpoint inhibitors, which is the current rage in oncology. And these drugs actually remove the blinders, if you want to think of that way, from your immune system. Sometimes your immune system is blinded to a tumor, so it can't actually see it. And if it could see it, it can get rid of it. And these new drugs, which all in the class called checkpoint inhibitors, actually remove that blinding, if you want to think of it that way, and allow the immune system to see it. In relation to your research, which attacks the cancers once they're in place, what kind of preventative techniques technology have you discovered along the way? Is that something the company is going to get involved with, especially when it relates to something like pediatric brain cancer? Well, the whole area of what people would normally think of as prophylactic therapy, treating people before they have a disease, absolutely intriguing. 
And we have spent quite a bit of time thinking about that. I mean, if you have an agent that's safe, and that's the key thing, then you can think about treating people before they have an external manifestation of the disease. When they have a few cancer cells floating around someplace, it would be the ideal time to treat a patient. And so if an agent's safe, like real life, then you start thinking about being able to use it as a prophylactic agent. And we've done that in animals in particular. So the question is, how do you translate that into human use? And that is where the problem comes with prophylactic. How do you prove you're preventing cancer in very large patient populations? And that's just a very daunting task for any company, much less the company the size of Oncolytics, which is a fairly small company. But I think it's possible. And I think there's agents like Realison should be able to be used in that indication. But it's just getting over the developmental hurdle about how do you actually prove it. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Well, thank you very much. Hope you have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, the CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trending on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes. Getting hungry? Eat knowledge. Find it at ellismartinreport.com. Go to the website right now. EllisMartinReport.com. The following segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum, trading in the U.S. as WGPLF and on the TSX as WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest cost open pit producers of platinum group metals and nickel. Find them on the web at WellgreenPlatinum.com. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, welcome back to the program. Ellis, it's great to be back. Why all the secrecy around legislation in this country now. Did we wake up one day and find ourselves not in the same country we were born into? Well, it's been gradual, but yeah, we are definitely in a different country than, you know, when I was born. And what I saw as a young man, a lot of it probably has changed to the uh, idea that people see it very plainly and clearly now. Whether the process was always this way or not could be debated. I mean, a lot of people can argue that the voting situation is not what it seems and these presidents are selected, not elected, and there's a lot to that. There there is so much going on, it reminds me of the end of the Roman Empire, where at the beginning, the republic, and that's what we really are, is a constitutional republic. We're not a democracy. A democracy is mob rule, but that's what people think we have. The republic was set up, and the senators really did represent the people of Rome, and of course, near the end, all they cared about was what was left and what the spoils were that they could have personally and damn the people. And that's pretty much what we're seeing now from the Congress critters and from the Senate. There's a few exceptions here and there, but the whole system is not working the way it was designed to work. That's a fact. Well, the Roman Empire and then the British Empire, and I guess any empire, collapsed into a bunch of feudal nation states after a while, and then nation states. Are we headed to loosely connected republics again in the future of our world? Very good great question. I really thought about it quite a bit. No one has an answer. I think it'll be a combination of a lot of different things. As central power actually degrades, the more they want to control everything and everyone and certainly have the technology to do so, but they'll, one, get a lot of pushback 
two, if any of these non sequiturs come in, any of these black swans, you may see disruptions maybe in a state like a California with the water situation. You might see it in a country. You might see it in two countries. I mean, there's a lot of variables. And with so many variables, what the equation will equal at the end is extremely difficult to determine. I think you'll find there'll be areas with self-organizing communities. For an example, if you have a banking crisis in a certain country and basically it isn't resurrected right away or some people just opt out and, and do not turn in their old currency for the new or whatever, will organize themselves. So there'll be communities that are of like thinkers in certain areas. So that's one possibility. The other one is, of course, if the welfare status of whatever, be it the U.S. or be it other uh, nation states that have equal systems, meaning that there's people that are on the entitlement situation and it doesn't buy what they need or it stops or it's intermittent or any of those possibilities, then you'll see pushback in the form of violence. And again, that could take place regardless. I mean, if you go back to the Arab Spring, everyone says it was, oh, they want democracy, which is absolute, total, complete nonsense. That was because they were, food costs were so high. That's what they were in the streets about. That's direction is going. I mean, a lot of people aren't talking about this avian flu, which is this bird flu, which is killing huge numbers of the chicken population in the United States. Look it up. Google it. Don't take my word for it. Check it out. And so what that does is it affects two things. It affects chicken as a meat source and as an egg source. And eggs are still the, about the lowest cost protein source you can get. And chicken is cheaper than beef, etc. So this is a big concern and you're not hearing much about it at all in the mainstream. So there's all kinds of issues that are coming together. And I do think that there will be disruptions. And I think the more the powers that be try to gain more and more power, the less likely it is to occur. The whole idea is a very simple one, and it's one that most people say can't happen, won't happen, and that's that governments fail, and governments do fail. In fact, you outlined the Byzantine, the Mesopotamian, the Roman, the British, I mean, all empires have come and gone. In fact, digressing further, in the movie that I was in, thefourhorsemanfilm.org, if you type that into Google, thefourhorsemanfilm.org, you'll go and be able to watch the movie for free now. I'm one of the people that were interviewed in the movie. It's about empire, and that's a great movie to watch, to understand where we are, and to understand that they all fail. And also, if you have people that are kind of on the fence or don't believe any of this stuff, it's a good film for them to watch. It's a very well-made film. I know Dominic Frizz in fact, I met him early on and one of my first trips to London and honestly, Ellis, Dominic was a non-believer in honest money and he was pretty much a statist and not a libertarian at all. And I'm not saying it was just me, but I think that the interview he did with me got him to think. He's, he was open-minded enough to say, wow, this kind of makes sense. He has written a book, Life After the State. I mean, he's become a complete libertarian. Not that everyone has to agree with my view or anything else. It's just that, you know, it was interesting to know him and see him, you know, do the voice of this movie I just mentioned and write books and see his change and see where his philosophy has gone and you know, I really like the guy for a lot of reasons and not because he became a libertarian but it's just interesting that power of an idea is very very powerful so the power of the idea that we should be free we want to be free we don't want to be dictated to we don't want to be controlled and listened on and all that for the vast majority there's people out there that have been brought up in this environment that think what's the big deal I'm nothing to hide let them listen to all my conversation let them read all my texts let them look at every purchase I make etc etc well you know 
I'm not going to tell anybody how to live their life, but that's not the life I want. I was on uh, morganreport.com and I was looking at your blog and you posted something by uh, a gentleman named Christopher Mullen. According to his article, he was speaking about economic collapses that are usually predicted two to three years in advance. They may not happen right away, but they eventually do. They usually happen about three years out and we're headed toward that at this time. Yes, in fact, the movie goes through this as well, how you cycle through different phases like the age of pioneers and there's this expansion and happiness and uh, they don't put in these terms but working and, and discovering and getting along and then it, that kind of burns out and you go into the next phase and what Chris is saying in this article is I can't really reiterate much better what you said I mean we're at a point in time where the collapse hasn't occurred yet depending on how you measure it I mean I would be of the school that the collapse took place in 2008 and it was quote unquote fixed but it really hasn't been fixed and here we are seven years later and we are in a situation that's only gotten worse everything that was wrong in 2008 has been increased other than the uh, real estate situation is not at the bubble, but the debt bubble has expanded. And the biggest debt bubble and the one that will take down a government is the bond market. And that's the biggest bubble of all. The biggest bond market bubble is the United States market, the U.S. bond market. And we're already seeing interest rates start to move up, which means bond prices go down. And that will be the main reason you won't see a hyperinflation, in my view, is the reason that there's so much money in bonds, it dwarfs the equity market so that you can take the whole stock market and fit it into the bond market several times because the debt markets are just humongous. Not only government debt, which is the bonds, and the perception here is just, you know, this is going right back to the matrix. I mean, the idea being that a bond is the most secure investment that you can have. It's like bonds are better than gold. A lot of people believe that, that the U.S. bond is sacrosanct. That is the absolute safest place to put your money. And that is absolutely the most upside down, illogical lie in the universe. And here's why. The government that issues the bond will tell you that's based on the full faith and credit of the fill in the blank United States, Spain, Greece, whatever. Look at Greece. They can't pay their debt and they don't have bonds. But the point is they can't pay their debt and the U.S. bond market can't pay their debt either. On the full faith and credit means it's the ability to extract everything out of their citizens and squeeze them to death in order to pay the debt for whoever holds the debt. Say, well, we owe it to ourselves. That's not true either. China owns a great deal of the debt. There's foreign nationals or other governments and there are some people in the United States that own government debt and, and you could say, yes, they owe it to themselves. In other words, are Americans that bought American debt. But if you took everybody's ability to pay in the United States, in other words, took 100% of their income every year and let them starve, you know, you just basically just took their lives more or less, I'm using this as a metaphor, would not be able to take care of the debt burden that already exists. So the government doesn't produce anything to pay the debt back. They rely on their citizens to pay it back. So the full faith and credit means the ability of all your neighbors to come up with $3 million instantly to pay that debt back. Now, the debt isn't going to be called due instantly, right? I mean, no one that holds a bond is all going to go to the window and say, I want cash for this debt. I want to cash it in. They're not going to rush the window at one time. However, it doesn't have to happen that way. In fact, it won't happen that way. What could happen, and most likely will happen, is that enough of it will be cashed out where there's sort of a run on the bank. There'll be China that wants to cash out so much of the U.S. debt, Russia, maybe Japan, and all of a sudden the interest rates start to go up and up and up because 
they have to give a higher interest rate in order to keep the system alive. And when that's the case, it kind of accelerates on itself. And the bond markets hold the key to the whole thing. And there's no bond market. There's no government-issued currency, no government-issued debt that has stood the test of time. But, you know, gold coin worked in the Roman Empire and it works today. I mean, that's my point. So you want to get really truthful, really honest, really sincere, really look objectively and tell the truth. What you'll find is that gold and silver are the money that lasts eons. And there isn't any government that lasts eons. Again, going back to that movie I was in. So we are in a precarious situation. Chris did a good job of outlining it. Take a look at the article and think for yourself. Look at where you think we are. And what I like to say is I don't want to pound the table saying, you know, buy gold, buy silver. That's all you've got to do because there's a lot, it's a lot more complicated than that. I think everyone should own some. I think 10% is probably enough for most people. And the 10% is that is there a 10% chance that in the rest of your lifetime, there will be such economic uncertainty that you'll be glad that you had the money of last resort. If the answer is yes, I think there's a possibility of 20%, then maybe you could go to a 20% holding. But if you think it's unlikely, maybe go to 5% holdings. But I'm not saying 100%. Will this happen? It's inevitable that it will. The time frame is always difficult to get. I truly think that we're probably within three years. Again, look at Chris's article, and you can determine for yourself. And once you get the initial investment, I think you can really just kind of, you know, try to relax. I mean, these are very interesting times. But just go about your life. I mean, you don't need to focus your whole life on finances. Finances are part of your life, but they're not total. I mean, people like me, that's my livelihood. So, of course, I spend more time there, but the average person doesn't need to. Well, if you want to collect anything, and people have many different hobbies and collections, why not collect something you may be able to use as barter someday, silver or gold, correct? Absolutely. The Yellow Smart Report is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Wellgreen Platinum is a Canadian mining exploration and development company focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Wellgreen PGM and nickel project toward production. A 2015 economic assessment shows the Wellgreen project located in the Canadian Yukon to be potentially the second largest PGM producer outside Southern Africa and Russia. With average annual production of over 200,000 ounces platinum, palladium, and gold, along with 128 billion pounds of nickel and copper from just 34% of the pit-constrained resource, making it possibly one of the largest in the world. Estimates show that once in production with assets near or at the surface, this low-cost producer may generate cash flow exceeding as much as $330 million per year. Situated along a major highway in a mining-friendly jurisdiction with an active market for PGMs and nickel, and with a strong management team, Wellgreen is certainly to be considered a candidate for your portfolio. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. David, tell us about the Morgan Report. I will. Uh, one thing that I don't know if I've ever talked about in public is once you become a paid member of the Morgan Report, we're at the top of the members-only section. There's something that is called how to use the Morgan Report because that's the most important thing, which means that's the first thing you should read. And you should read it a second time because it outlines why we structure the portfolio the way we do. It talks about your age and how much gold or silver you should own. And it absolutely prevents you from making big mistakes because I made big mistakes investing in the junior mining stocks when I was quite 
young, and I learned the lesson very well. I didn't want anyone that relied on my work, and it's just not me. As you know, Ellis, it's me and two other analysts, and we have a staff. So it will prevent you from making big mistakes. I mean, we believe in big money goes into big companies and medium and medium, and when you speculate, that's exactly what it is. And it outlines exactly how to do it. It outlines how to put a stop loss in. It explains why a stop loss on a big company is tighter than a stop loss on a speculative company. It explains when you speculate how you do it to prevent taking a big loss because you spread out your bets. And all this is outlined. And the reason I'm going through this is one is extremely important for everybody that has money at risk. And two, it's disheartening to me because I do care about others. I certainly care about people in general, but especially our members. And occasionally we'll get an email or a phone call or whatever that someone has bought XYZ mining and put in X amount. And I say, that must mean you have 100X in your mining portfolio. And well, no. Well, did you read, you know, how to use the Morgan Report? Well, yeah, I think I did or whatever. Anyway, the point is that a lot of people, unfortunately, will overload on a speculative situation. Now, honestly, if you put a ton of money in the right speculation and it goes up 30-fold, you're going to be one happy camp. Really emphasizing this, Ellis, because how to use the Morgan Report, I mean, I put everything I possibly could into that, and I almost would love to make it a requirement. You signed up. You're now a member. You see the website. Most feedback we get is usually like, oh, wow, I had no idea you guys had this kind of material available to me for this price. I mean, there's so many special reports and all this stuff that comes with it. But the key is how to use it and how to use it properly. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. The preceding segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Trading in the U.S. is WGPLF and on the TSX is WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest cost open pit producers of platinum group metals and nickel. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. This is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.